This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Welcome to the CSM Podcast with David Nickturn. Creativity, spirituality, and making a buck. Blending spiritual and temporal realities, joining heaven and earth. We will be talking with a variety of manifestors, individuals who have, in one way or another, clarified their vision, created an offering, and brought that offering to the marketplace. Let's see what we can learn from them as we each move forward towards solving our own life puzzle. Facing the challenge of living in the spirit, in the body, in the world, in this time. If you're interested in supporting the CSM podcast, please visit eherenownetwork.com forward slash David. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of my new podcast, Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck. My guest today is my good friend Daniel Goleman. Danny is an internationally known psychologist and author. His 1995 book, Emotional Intelligence, was on the New York Times bestseller list for a year and a half, with more than 5 million copies in print worldwide in 40 languages. Emotional Intelligence was named one of the 25 most influential business management books by Time magazine. The Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal have listed Mr. Goldman among the most influential business thinkers of our time. Danny is also a board member of the Mind and Life Institute, which fosters dialogues and research collaborations among contemplative practitioners and scientists. Daniel has organized a series of intensive conversations between the Dalai Lama and scientists, which resulted in the books Healthy Emotions and Destructive Emotions. His recent work includes A Force for Good, which he co-authored with the Dalai Lama, and Altered Traits, co-authored with Richard Davidson. It's a pleasure to share one of our periodic deep Dharma dives with all of our friends in cyberspace. Daniel San. David San. So good to have you. You know why I call you that, right? No, why do you call me that? We never discussed that, but it's from the Karate Kid. <laughs> the boy's name was Daniel, remember that? Oh, I didn't remember that. And, and the sensei used to go, Daniel San, pretty good, <laughs> wax on, wax off. So that's why I call you Daniel San. So, um, everybody knows Daniel is the author of Emotional Intelligence, one of the kind of trend-setting books looking at the, um, you know, the role of feeling in terms of intelligence as opposed to just purely intellectual. And it's known worldwide. The, the notion of EI is a, is a yeah, actually, method uh, that's gone into the popular the, vernacular. The, uh, 
The word EQ now exists in many right. languages. Yes. In Japan, they talk about EQ. Yeah. yeah and I don't use EQ. I use EI. But, right. you know, what, say la vie, whatever. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and just to let everybody get even more familiar, um, Daniel has worked very closely with the Dalai Lama, Holiness the Dalai Lama, and co-authored a book with him, right? Uh, the book is called A Force for Good, The Dalai Lama's Vision for Our World, and it's his view, um, and not a Buddhist book, it's a view for everyone of what he thinks will uh, help get the world on the right track going in the future. Right. Well, of course, I, you and I always end up talking about that in one form or another, right? Big picture, down to the small picture. So that's kind of, um, you know, the context of creativity spirituality and making a buck is like an accordion that you can open. You can start at the very small level of just sort of personal uh, vision and accomplishment and, mm -hmm. you know, fulfilling your own existence. But obviously that um, has a lot of implications for how we live with other people, how we work with people, mm -hmm. how we treat people, mm -hmm. what kind of social forms we create, what kind of societal forms we create. So the, our conversation can zoom in and out at, at, as, you, as you wish. And these are things, of course, with, with friends like um, Danny, we're talking about this kind of stuff a lot. Just this is our idea of a good time, actually. That's true. So maybe That's strange. <laughs> I don't know how yeah. good we are at a cocktail party, but <laughs> Dharma is is always good. So um, you know, you can zoom in. Um, I think I'd like to jump off. And we just took a long walk in Central Park, and um, and there's uh, the notion of. Um, Finding purpose came up as, with a project that you're working on. I don't know if you're free to discuss it or not at this sure. point. But in the way it's framed in the book is the notion of heaven. The first chapter is joining heaven and earth. And the heaven notion is finding a kind of big space in which you can visualize and conceptualize potential um, uh, way of looking at your own life, way of looking at the big picture. And the main quality of heaven is unobstructed. It doesn't You don't start negotiating with it yet. You just allow it to arise. So what's your heaven, Daniel? <laughs> I am uh, concerned about the future of the planet and people on it and all life on it, uh, particularly because of not just global warming, but because of the fact that the human brain has a blind spot for the actual consequences of what we do. And human activity, everyday activity, Inadvertently, I think innocently, but still uh, incessantly, uh, is undermining the global systems that support life on the planet. And this concerns me. Uh, a blind spot. Now, that's a, that sounds like that's you, a, are you the, saying technically we have a blind spot? Technically, we have a blind spot. It's because our uh, neural system for spotting danger and threat uh, was shaped by the fact that for most of human history, we've had to avoid things that would eat us and run after things that we could eat. <laughs> and so we have a narrow range of perception. We don't see what bees see. They see ultraviolet spectrum. We don't see the big uh, systems that we live in. We see the narrow range that helps us survive. And As intelligent as we quote-unquote are. Yeah, uh -huh. but actually there's this concept of affordances and affordance is the choices you're given you think that's the whole range of it but actually we're given a very narrow range of choice in terms of spotting threat 
and the choice we have are the uh, modern symbolic equivalent of things that will eat us or things that we eat. However, our perceptual system simply cannot uh, directly take in the ways in which we're destroying the planet every day. It's too macro, too large, right. or too small, too minute mm -hmm. for us to actually perceive. And our threat system, particularly the amygdala, the brain's radar for threat, mm -hmm. shrugs. It doesn't care because that's not something that's immediately of a danger to us. That's the blind spot. And because of that, we've developed powerful systems for living on the planet uh, that help us uh, you know, eat well and keep us... Uh, Keep us from being eaten. From being eaten right. every day and, uh, you know, cure us of diseases to some extent and all of that. But when those things were developed and innovated and created, we had no technology, no methodology for assessing how they uh, impacted uh, air, water, soil, uh, what their energy footprint is, what their carbon footprint is. What, in other words, we didn't see the invisible parts of the consequences, and we disregarded them. And now, in recent years, there are methods for assessing that, uh, but there, uh, we need a kind of workaround, a mental workaround to take them seriously. Uh, I'm hoping that that will become part of how companies operate, because I don't think that it's up to people individually. Mm -hmm. uh, but at any rate, you asked, what is my concern? Your heaven. My heaven. My heaven is that we dodge the bullet. Uh -huh. However, there are, I, I don't think there's one heaven. There are many right. heavens. Right. There's another heaven, which is, I'm very interested in the effects of uh, serious meditation practice. You, you could use the word Dharma practice, which is a bigger package. Meditation mm -hmm. is part of it. And my hope is that uh, the fruits of that practice would be widely available and that people would dive in deep Many people dive in deep or go to scale, so to speak. Right now, there's a relatively narrow range of people who do what I would call deep meditative practice. Yogis, nuns, uh, monks, mm -hmm. uh, a few Westerners, very few Westerners. Uh, but Asian culture is one that gives a cocoon that has an understanding of, you know, it's worth supporting someone who's just meditating yeah. because that's for the common good. It's we like, don't have that in the world. Like Central Park, somebody said it's worth having trees. Exactly. They have a Central Park for spirituality, is what yeah. you're saying. So yeah. we're, we're more open to having trees in our parks than we are to having yogis in our towns. Right. And do you, what, what would you say is the relationship between um, cultivating spiritual uh, development in this way and Buddhism? Is, is, are those one and the same thing or are those two different oh, No, things? there are many ways. Buddhism is just one path, mm -hmm. one doorway. There's many, many paths to um, the common goal. There, there's an irony. You know, I just uh, finished another book called Altered Traits, How Meditation Changes the Mind, the Body, and, uh, and the Brain. And my colleague, Richard Davidson, who's a neuroscientist, uh, looked at the more than 6,000 peer-reviewed scholarly articles on meditation. What do you do then in his spare time? <laughs> you look at 6,000 articles. Get a team. Well, <laughs> okay. it, it was to find the, the best. There were about uh -huh. 60 that it were pretty bulletproof, uh -huh. published in the A-level journals, uh -huh. had the best methodology. Uh -huh. and it was pretty easy to call out the ones that weren't very good. Most right. of them are not good. Uh, and 
or not don't meet those standards, I should say. Right. Any rate, uh, it was very clear that meditation alters the brain and the mind in ways that are very positive. And let me explain. The more there's a dose response relationship. The more you do it, the stronger the benefits become. Uh -huh. There was an irony we found, though, a paradox right. in what was studied. Uh -huh. Most of the studies show uh, that people become more focused and better uh, have better control of their attention, can ignore right. distractions. That's a big issue today in yeah, everyday life. Mm -hmm. uh, the second was that people become more calm, less upset, less likely to be triggered. Uh, you yeah. know, it's a calm and clear. That's that's uh, positive. You can work best from calm and clear. You can right. do your best. Be your best person. Um, also, uh, there are methods that that open the heart, mm -hmm. like loving kindness practices, and they actually turn out to make people kinder, more generous. Mm -hmm. But what's not studied much is uh, selflessness, which is a paradox because every major spiritual tradition says. Hey, the point of practice is to get out of your everyday me, I, me, mine, right. preoccupied self and be more open to the needs of the people around you. Altruism. The world. Altruism, right? kindness, Charity. generosity, compassion. Right. Not studied. That is almost nobody All studied. those 6,000 studies that wasn't studied? <laughs> compassion and altruism are studied, but not uh, getting over the self, the self-involvement, the self-preoccupation. Uh -huh, uh -huh, uh -huh. And But that's kind of the nub of it all from a mm -hmm. spiritual point of view. Mm -hmm. So practice is, you know, there. Uh, we have a friend who's training 1,500 people as mindfulness teachers, but it, not at a level where it's getting over the self. It's more like, okay, I'll go into your business sure. and, you know, help help make you more effective. A better day. self. A, a better self, Yeah. but not a non-self or a mm -hmm. someone who can... Uh, not be attached to the things of the self mm -hmm. as much as we are. So, uh, you know, you ask about my heaven. Another heaven would be more and more people who are more compassionate and less self-focused. Right. Wow. That's like uh, uh, a deep, a deep dive. Um, because I think most people, if you ask them about their vision or formulating a notion of success, they'd be at least in the mix. <laughs> <laughs> my success somewhere in there well, yeah. now, well it may not be the only thing in it but maybe somewhere in there. well that's okay because yeah. you know as the, the Dalai Lama himself said you know in my language Tibetan and in Sanskrit compassion implies compassion for yourself as well as other people uh -huh. he said in English you have a problem it's only about helping other people mm -hmm, what mm -hmm. about yourself you need a word for that Yeah, there is a word self-compassion now right, but sure. at the time there wasn't and so you know, taking care of yourself, that's perfectly fine. Yeah. But also, what about other people? Yeah. There's a chapter in the book, by the way, called um, Don't Take Yourself Too Seriously, The Illusory Nature of Reality. Oh, nice. So really, um, you know, you know, I'm sure you've heard that, that Jewish um, Zen joke of like, if there's no self, then whose arthritis is this? You know, it's, it's kind <laughs> of, uh, you know, the notion of how self is formulated it's almost more important than whether you think it is or it isn't. Like, what do you put in that basket of the notion of self? And some people would say, well, myself means that the well-being of the entire universe. I think in the some, people, some people might do that. That's yeah. good. Yeah. But I actually think 
most of us don't really have a conception of self. We just go around yeah. selfing all day long. Selfing and having contemplated who it is who's even talking. We don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, just do talk. That. Yeah. <laughs> we do that. We do that and we, you know, look yeah. at us. <laughs> There's, um, you know, trying to straddle the notion of heaven and earth, coming back to that idea, is all the way from that lofty idea, which you're, you're at, I, I've got to give it to you. Nobody's top. Your 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 heaven is is one is the big. You got the biggest heaven so far of anybody I've talked to. I get the heaven award. <laughs> yeah, you actually are literally talking about heaven. Um, is is um, then to start to bring that down to what are you doing tomorrow at four p.m. What are we doing? So you're you're interesting because of all you know. I don't get a sense of rest from you if somebody's ah I did enough. I gave, I gave at the office kind of. You're still really cracking some well, new territory here. I'm getting very interested in uh, people's sense of purpose and meaning. What mm -hmm. matters yeah, to people? Yeah, we started talking about that. Maybe what uh, yeah. what really deeply moves people? Mm -hmm. Not just like their dopamine circuits and mm -hmm. their serotonin circuits, right. but what feels good to do. Yeah, and you know, or, and what's the do you? If you ask the question, is what I'm about to do in keeping with my sense of meaning and purpose right. is it deeply satisfying yeah what's the answer at 4 p.m in the afternoon well it varies maybe at three it, it feels good maybe four doesn't feel so good maybe seven feels better i think that you know we do so many things through the day yeah uh but is there a, an overall direction to that mm -hmm. and is it in the, pointing you as a inner compass toward something that's really meaningful to you you know and i, I would say that um for me it it's uh, i i'm striving for that yeah to find that and well so that would be step one but then you're also talking about maybe creating some kind of enterprise out of that inquiry right you mentioned that earlier like actually making god's forbid a business out of it. a business I, venture I, an adventure yeah, and actually, there's some things that I think is fine to monetize, and yeah. some things I'm not so hot about monetizing. Yeah, that's a good. That's a and good um, that might be one that I'm not so interested in monetizing. I'm more interested in uh, urging people, maybe nudging people, <laughs> maybe encouraging people <laughs> to explore what is their sense of purpose, what is their sense of meaning, which is a question that people don't formulate that in words that often although you may have an inner felt sense mm -hmm. uh, but i think it might be useful to articulate it yeah uh and i i wouldn't charge people for that wow Dan, you heard it here first people <laughs> the phone number is <laughs> that's so um you know that's an important part of this book is when you formulate doing you know save a service yeah. kind of things. One of the notions is that, and, and one of the intriguing areas is the spiritual communities did wander away from the idea of building strong platforms for themselves to invade and permeate this phenomenal world, which is now not uh, following some of the principles that you're talking about here. So maybe there's not enough support for the kind of etheric or intellectual abstract uh, thoughts about these things. So, and at the same time, the material world was going off on its own and going like, we don't care about the 
cycle of life. We don't care about well-being. We don't care about longevity of any of these things. So part of the premise of the book is that these two threat, these two parts of ourselves have bifurcated. We've become incapable of integrating those two things, or less capable. You understand what I'm saying there? I'm not sure. I'm. Uh, I, I get it. Yeah. Maybe you could put it different. Well, just the spiritual dimension of like, uh-huh. what is your true meaning? Right. What is your true purpose? And, and then how would you living. implement it and, and then actually uh-huh. bring it down to earth level? Uh, and to do that, you might have to understand certain things about uh, sort of the business principles that the spiritual communities have poo-pooed for thousands of years. Well, the... Um, Many great spiritual teachers have poo-pooed that stuff. And said, I would say that the separate. Asian cultures yeah. from which many of the uh, spiritual traditions that are right. coming to the West now right. originate had a different business model than the one we use now. <laughs> okay. Their business model was that uh, there is a greater worth to have people who are unproductive, quote, unproductive, from a business point of view, but who are very productive from a uh, personal and interpersonal nourishment point of view. Right. We're nourishing to be around. Right. So I had the good fortune in the 70s to go to India Mm. and hang out with an old yogi named Neem Kroli Baba, Ramdas is good. Yeah. When you were with Ninkoli Baba, you felt fabulous. Mm-hmm. You felt content. You felt nourished. You felt loved. And all the time. Yeah, pretty pretty much all the time. Unless unless you got caught in some mind state. Yeah. Like jealousy, mm-hmm. envy. Like, mm-hmm. why is he paying attention to that dude, ah. not to me? <laughs> but you know, that's your own mind. But if you're open to it, you, there was this field. And the field was because, I think, because he had done very deep spiritual practice. Mm. So in those cultures, it was understood that it's worthwhile to encourage people to do deep spiritual practice and to support them doing that. Mm-hmm. Give them sampa, which is barley, which is mm-hmm. the daily staple of the Tibetans, to have an ashram and contribute to the ashram. Right. Because it's for the greater good of the community. In a, an economy which is not money-based, which is a, a different kind of an economy. Right. And, that, uh, and that model doesn't really exist in the West. It doesn't mm-hmm. exist in the uh, cultures from which our business models have emerged, mm-hmm. in which our economics has emerged. Mm-hmm. We, we don't have a room in that business model or in that economic model for this other form of exchange. And so I think we're, we've been pretty blind to it. So this is interesting. So how do you make a living and still have a spiritual vision in the West? Mm-hmm. And my feeling is that you don't necessarily monetize the spiritual part. You, you look at what your skills are and what the market wants, yeah. and you find a match. And, you've, and uh, you know, it's called good work. You take three things. What you're good at, your excellence, yeah what you love doing, what engages you, and then your moral compass, you know, is, is, is this something I could do? You know, mm-hmm. Don't be evil, said Google. Like right livelihood kind of. Right livelihood, yeah, you align those three things. Right. You know, excellence, engagement, and ethics, and that's good work. And if you can find that, then it, it's perfectly fine to make a living there. In fact, you'll love doing that mm-hmm. thing. However, it doesn't necessarily mean that everything about your spiritual path is folded into your livelihood. Mm. 
maybe your livelihood is supporting the path in your life. So this, you do see this kind of dual engine here that in, in Asian culture, they kind of allow for the whole community to support these two activities. Well, I would say in traditional Asian, not modern Asian culture. Well, yeah. Because it's really. been tainted, I would say, by the Western model. But I think w what I'm peeking at, you know, just taking an early look at, is is there something about that bifurcation that's uh, fictitious in the first place? How do you mean? Same in old. other words, that there is, that they're not two separate worlds. There's only one world that you live in. And if you're doing business or you're being creative or you're playing music or if you're practicing meditation, that there are common threads going through all of that, which is, for example, awareness can go through all of that. Compassion can go through all of those experiences. Yeah. That there may be a sort of underlying unity there. That, well, yes, exactly. And, it, and that's what I'm getting at in the book is like yes. what, the and, idea of integration. And I would agree. I would say you can fold your spiritual practice into your daily life, yeah, well, into your livelihood. Or not just see them separate in the first place. In fact... Uh, you can be compassionate at work. It's not separate. You can be compassionate with your family, with your friends. And that's a, you could say that's a spiritual thread, but it's definitely woven through your daily life. But what if, what if the spiritual and the material were, were only appeared to be dual? So we're uh, I would say that there's, um, there's a, a model from Tibetan practices, which is helpful here which is relative and ultimate. Mm -hmm. Relatively speaking, mm -hmm. they may seem to be dual. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, they're not. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's all we have time for. <laughs> <laughs> of course, the problem with recording in space, you know, video and audio recording is you're not sure if it's working. In real life, if there's space, you can sort of surmise that maybe it's still working, but there's just some space. But if we stop talking on an audio recording, people will think, ah, oh, they've reached an epiphany here, and they're quiet, and they're sort of just resting in the realization of what was just, what just happened. Or, my fucking tape recorder just broke. <laughs> or, that's the end of the podcast. <laughs> that's the end of the podcast. <laughs> Anyhow, I don't know where we go to from there, because that was sort of, um, you know, absolute and relative is some I get, I, there's so many people I want to talk to about that. And it's so well formulated in the Tibetan Buddhist uh, way of talking about those things. And the idea that some people's version of spiritual practice or spirituality is that it leans in the direction of the absolute. And then some people's version of daily life is that it leans in the direction of the relative. But actually, that's not, you know, there's one, um, you know, there was a teaching, um, that Gyaltsap Rinpoche gave once. And he said the higher teaching than absolute and relative is the inseparability of the two. That's right. Yeah. So that's, uh, and for people out there who are not really sort of trained in this kind of um, tradition, meaning that um, that you can't really separate out your samsara and your nirvana, your confusion from your wisdom. It's all wrapped into one kind of interwoven strand. So how do you tell the difference? <laughs> I think that... Um... There's a actually a pretty fair metric for that. Yeah. Which is when you think a thought, yeah. and it's a thought that you find either upsetting or attractive. Right. Uh, how sucked into the thought are you, mm -hmm. and how uh, 
how able are you to see it as just a thought? Mm. If you're sucked in, mm -hmm. that's pretty relative. And if you see it as just a thought, that's close. That's in the direction of ultimate. So, reactive state would be where you're sucked in, right? And, and then yeah. you don't really have you don't really have much uh, kind of perspective anymore. No, I mean when you're very reactive, when you're, I call it an amygdala hijack. <laughs> okay. And you know things happen like your attention just fixates right. on that thing that's upsetting you. Yeah. You can't think of other stuff. You can't, yeah. you know, you're stuck there. Yeah, uh, you're in some negative state. Yeah, and the more stuck there you are, the more negative it gets. Yeah, it's a, like a very bad. So the stuck, cycle. the idea of feeling stuck, is sort of the opposite feeling to feeling. Uh, you know, there, there's one chapter where I quote Bruce Lee. He says, "Be like water, my friend," because <laughs> he was. Uh -huh. He developed, for example, he developed a kind of martial form that didn't rely on any kind of rigid ideas about what you're supposed to be doing. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's famous for that. Uh -huh. Yeah. So the idea of um, creating kind of and and you know being fluid uh, seems to be the quality of people who are. Uh, accomplished in a way. Yes. It often goes with the, a, yes. you know, like, right. of course, people who are accomplished can be dog, appear dogmatic or they know, they've right. found a way. But the real quality of, is exploration and sort of being willing to not get stuck in that way, not get fixed. And also seamless transitions. Yeah. I, I remember being with this uh, Tibetan teacher. His name is Toka Urgen. Oh, yeah. And he was one of the most esteemed masters of the 20th sure. century. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we were all in this great space with him. And then a, a guy comes in, a poly laborer comes in, and he says, uh, we're putting in the electric in this uh, wing of the monastery you're building. Yeah. Where, where do you think we should put it? And all of a sudden he's like, oh, da, 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 da. he's totally there on, the on, you know, in the construction reality. Yeah. And then the guy leaves and he's back. Or I don't know if he ever left, actually. Yeah. Well, so that there is that sense of inseparability of the, the absolute and the relative. Yeah, it's, exactly. it's, He doesn't really look at it as like, oh, well, now we're coming down to the relative here and we have to figure out where the wiring goes. It's, I, it's, I don't think it was a blip on his radar. Yeah. 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 Uh -huh. So I've, I've seen that with, um, uh, you know, in Tibetan tradition, the high lamas, the abbots, you know, the sort of head people in the monasteries were expected to attend to all kinds of practical details. Exactly. You know, and that's still the case. We visited Garwang Rinpoche's uh, monastery in Sikkim, and people are asking him all kinds of questions, and he doesn't appear to have any bias towards what level of um, worldliness or not it is. It's, it's been transcended. That, that, mm -hmm. that dichotomy's been transcended. Yeah, we're talking high-end here. Yeah. I mean, most of us are living in a different kind of reality. Yeah. It's It's great to know that that's possible. Yeah. It's a human possibility. The uh, meditation research points there, but takes mm -hmm. a long, lot of practice yeah. to approach that. But uh, it's really interesting to me that your book is trying to fold all of this together. Yeah. Say more about your book. Well, or at least, at least uh, chant, uh, provoke or invite um, a thought process that starts at the personal level of like, who are you and what are you doing? And did you, A, uh, starting with some clarity about what, that's the heaven principle. You know, a lot of people just, they don't get where they're going because they're not clear where they're trying to get to in the first place. Yeah. So the clarity is missing. 
but that's something you can contemplate. You, and I do, I do this kind of one-to-one work with people all the time. It's like, put the pieces of the puzzle on the table. Let's see what the whole picture looks like. And where would you like to, to, to navigate towards? So it'd be like um, getting some kind of contemplative visualization process of what, what the clarity of your particular journey is. Then implementing. Because those are the two places that I've seen over and over again where people get stuck. And they, then they're only in reactive states or in dull states where they go, I'm not clear what I'm doing, and I'm not sure how to, how to do it. And if you have clarity in those two things, the, the result is different. Where you want to go yeah, and how to get there. Yeah. Like, I started thinking about this platform of this creativity, spirituality, making a buck, and it just started opening in my mind um, of people working together, joint pooling their wisdom. Not, not, not only hierarchical relationship, but the horizontal relationship to wisdom of getting people together and talking about their lives. Like, I've been at a million retreats over the last 45 years. I don't even know who those people are a lot of the time, what they do, or what they're into. That's like considered, oh, that's just self, you know. But to include that process of like conjoining and saying, how's your life going? How's your vision going? How's your family? How's, how's your world? I, you know, Dave, I feel that that's actually more useful. That that is of more help to more people, the kind of thing you're talking about now, which is simply getting a clarity about what's happening in my life now. Yeah. Where do I want it to? What would I like it to be like? What's the vision? And how do I get there? Yeah. That's of enormous help, and I think it also uh, helps reduce a lot of suffering. Yeah, you see people banging into into walls. So, so Daniel-san, we're talking about clarity um, and helping ourselves and other people to achieve some kind of greater clarity about what they're doing, what they aspire to, which seems to be a direction you're really heading strongly into, which is purpose. And then once you kind of get some of that, my experience has been that the implementation part is um, uh, there's principles there. There's... Uh, powerful yeah. principles that are the same like interesting you said yeah. for example putting in time so like honing your skill honing yes your craft. yes so that's one of the chapters uh-huh. but then the other idea is like um you know learning you always have to retool so my, for example i just spoke to somebody today who's running a, a meditation center and they're a very bright person but they're i i took a look at their business diagram their vin diagram and right away, some things that an experienced business person would see in a second. Okay, so you have this one space that's going to gener- generate the revenue. And it's it's limited to not even the amount of money he needs to, to live on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So th- th- then you look at, okay, well, there's um, principles like um, putting the right support team together, uh, marketing, sales, that could seem like dirty words to, to somebody who's in the, in the spiritual world. But they, they're not. It's just what marketing is, is letting people know about what you're offering. It's, yeah, making it available. Yeah, and sales is actually um, creating a relationship. I don't even like the word monetize. Mm-hmm. I like sales better than monetize. Mm-hmm. Creating a relationship with that person where right. they have exchanged something with you in order to, to take mm-hmm. what you, your offering mm-hmm. is. And being clear, then the third piece, which I think, kind of frankly, very few people are talking about, but because I'm an artist and a musician, uh, maybe even primarily, you know, is what do you do with that? Where does that come from? And how do you um, 
tie that into the sense of well-being and how do you tie that into wow. a sense of um, livelihood because that creates a whole nother whole nother uh, thing and for example in my spiritual training my creativity was not war- wanted nobody cared just do the drill do the practice wait I just thought of a great song and that's ego so you wrote it down anyway I wrote it down anyway <laughs> exactly. exactly right that's smart you know, so I think there's another element, you know, for years I've been looking into emotional intelligence, yeah, which is how you handle yourself, how mm-hmm. are you disciplined, do you get triggered easily, are you pretty unflappable, are you clear and calm or mm-hmm. not, uh, do you have a goal, do you know how to get there, and also can you do it with people, mm-hmm. can you empathize, tune into right. other people, can you have a team, be part right. of a team, do you know who to put on the team and who to use for what activity, and... Can you persuade you, people? There's all emotional intelligence, yeah. uh-huh. and I think that is uh, an ingredient here in terms of executing well. Yeah, you know, you have the vision, mm. but you know, marketing can be good or not. Right. Uh, any of those can be good or not, yeah. depending on the emotional intelligence of the person doing it. Yeah, I, I've um, started with my uh, friends at Keystep Media, a training program for anybody. Right who wants to get better at these things, because I think that that is one of the ingredients and often overlooked because, uh, you, you know, we have strong categories for management, right. for marketing yeah. and all that, but we don't have a strong category for what are the elements, personal elements that make someone good at that or not. Yeah. And that's how and you, can you train it. Can you train people? Yes, and you, that's the, what exactly what we're doing, is helping people upgrade. So when I hear that as a kind of entrepreneurial type person, I have entrepreneurial energy. I like the idea of an idea coming in from nowhere and turning into a thing, and then you nurse it all the way through. And, you exactly. Know, it's a mothering thing. It's a creative burst. When you say that, like, for example, you know, I'm, I've, I'm partners in a meditation company in Japan, and we EQ is a big... Uh, um, they're already using that language over there in, their, in Goldman Sachs in Japan. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a way to pitch something that they consider, ooh, that might be valuable for us. And it could be huge. There's no doubt in my mind, that's like if I was looking to um, guess where some real, um, you could generate some real value, that would be um, an area. Well, there are actually now hundreds of emotional intelligence programs, trainings. I, I got into the game, oddly enough, very late, even though I was the guy who made it like a global. You got the brand. Word. I got the brand. <laughs> and now, only now am I starting to uh, do design trainings, coaching programs. Right. And it's because I, fa- I found the right people to do it with. Right. And I thought, well, I may as well, since I don't know what these other hundreds of people yeah. are doing, let me do it in the way I think it's done well and done right. Yeah, it's obviously kind of Star Trek: The Next Generation. It's we got, we got as far as we're going to get with that other kind of intelligence. We can't go any further with it. Well, I, there's also, I think, a, a widespread uh, misunderstanding of the relationship between cognitive ability, mm-hmm. IQ, okay. and emotional intelligence. Okay. Uh, there's a lot of data that shows that IQ correlates with career success, but what that means is. It actually correlates with the job you can get. 
Can you be an engineer? Can right. you be a lawyer? Okay. It doesn't predict whether once you're an engineer or a lawyer, if you'll be outstanding. If you'll thrive. Enough. Yeah, uh -huh. that's, that's where emotional intelligence comes in. Can you uh -huh. handle yourself? Can you be disciplined? Can you work toward your goals? Yeah. Can you get along with the team? Can you empathize? Can you persuade people? Yeah. That's, that's what makes someone outstanding, right. either as part of a team or as a leader. Right. And that's not, that's not understood well, particularly in the academic world which mm -hmm. is the world trains we, people for that. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. But in the business world, people know that. Anyone in HR will tell you that. Right. Any top executive. There's, I saw data that says uh, about 90 plus percent of top executives say it takes these soft skills, emotional intelligence, right. to get ahead and be a good leader. If you ask people who are just entering the workforce, they'll say, no, 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 that doesn't matter. 70% say it's technical skills that are going to get you ahead. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what the leaders know is, hey, you know, once you rise to a certain level, you hire people that know that stuff and you right. manage them. Right. It's not going to get you, you right. know, into an executive position. So, uh, you know, another um, chapter in the book is about intellectual property. Because this is, um, any, any entrepreneur, entrepreneur begins to recognize that this is the home run of business. In other words, if you need brick and mortar, you need real estate, you need employees, you know. And I, I came at it from the point of view of somebody who's a songwriter and who's made a, at times a lot of money from uh, something I forgot I even did at a certain point. And you go to the mailbox and a check falls out. So um, intellectual property, and we called the chapter um, Put a Ring on It, which is the Beyonce song, if you liked it, you should have put a ring on it. <laughs> sort of purloined her concept there a little bit and uh, changed it up a little. So you created a, a tremendously powerful piece of potentially, anyhow, intellectual property. Now, of course, in the form of the book, the royalties come in and, you know, you're you're kind of what we call in the mafia a made man because you wrote something that's a hit. You have a hit. It was a hit. Yeah, I had a hit. Other people have had hits. Sure. And you go... You're, you're going to be identified with that, so that brand. But what, what I am curious about is all this EQ that's going on out there. You don't have a piece of that. No, actually, it wasn't my concept. Oh, I see. It wasn't my IP. Oh, I just made it famous. <laughs> it was developed. The, the first time I came yeah. across the phrase emotional intelligence, it was an article in a journal that's so obscure it doesn't exist today. Yeah. I was at the New York Times as a science journalist. That was my job. Right was to scavenge academic journals right. and turn it into something people wanted to read. Right. So there was this article, Motion Intelligence, by a guy, actually a friend of mine, Peter Salovey, who was a psychologist at Yale, who's so, now the president of Yale. So he coined that phrase. He and his graduate student, John Mayer, right. who's another psychologist. And uh, nobody was paying much attention to it until I wrote a book with that title. Oh, wow. So on the one hand, they're very ambivalent, particularly... I think John, Jack Mayer, because uh, I, I didn't do the research. I didn't think of the word, of the concept. On the other hand, I made him famous. You did credit it back to him? Or? Of course. Yeah, of course. Okay, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, but I used it as a framework. Then, then I went kind of back to my psychology right, roots right. and came up with models. And right. uh, I had done a le created a leadership assessment, right. a development tool called mm -hmm. the Emotional and Social Competence Inventory. Right. ESCI, uh, which is used now routinely 
by coaches and HR departments mm -hmm. to train executives. So that was how, uh, that was the way in which I right. turned that into something that would continue to create checks in the mail. Yeah. I mean, anybody who I think from the perspective of people who are curious about this, part of the notion of building a platform out on this so people could hear from somebody like you, an aspiring person, go, well, here's, here's Daniel Goldman, who is this lovely, uh, wonderful human being who has a strong, uh, serious meditation practice, who's a very creative person and who, who has, you know, sort of doesn't whine about his livelihood situation. You know, you have kind of mastered the these three elements. So in our lingo, you're a manifesto. That's what we're calling you. I'm not saying you came to the end of your road. You're still exploring and you're still expanding. But from the point of view, you know, I meet a lot of people out there who are going like, how did you do that? How did you do that? And so putting them in touch with you. I'll is tell you how I did vision. it. I lucked I'm, out. Okay. How much? How much why, why luck? Uh, when I wrote the book Emotional Intelligence, right. I had no idea I'd do so well. In fact, I was passing around a proposal for the next book. Right. I was hoping someone would buy it before they found out how poorly it did. Emotional intelligence. Because <laughs> I had I had no idea that yeah. it would become a worldwide meme. Yeah. And that it would, you know, uh, two decades later, the Harvard Business Review is putting out a series called Emotional Intelligence. Mm -hmm. The article I wrote for them about emotional intelligence and leadership is still one of the most requested reprints right. in the history of that magazine. And I had no idea. I, you just try your luck. So you when know, you say so you, lucky, that's a very interesting concept, luck. You, you, you get a creative idea yeah. and you try to uh, you know, make it real. Right. You throw it out in the world and see if anything sticks. Right. Just like when you write a song. You right. don't know which is going to be a hit. No, you don't Do you? Know. Although, I'm going to say that I think I've gotten better and better over the years at not just songs, but just noticing when things are timely and, and the right packaging around, the right person, the right time and going, this is going to hit the zeitgeist. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not uh -huh. saying I'm infallible with it, but right. um, so, and the other question is, do we Buddhists believe in luck? Is that really, is there such a thing as luck from a Buddhist point of view? I don't know from a Buddhist I never point heard of view. A, I never heard anybody say luck before. No, <laughs> but um, I think that uh, there are idiosync idiosyncrasies at work. Yeah. There is serendipity. Yes. There is chance occurrences that you have to take advantage of when they come. There are opportunities and you may not right. expect them. Right. But you need to be ready for them. Yeah. That's another chapter in the book, by the way, synchronicity. Okay. Tendril in Tibet. Uh -huh. It's auspicious coincidence. We talked yeah. about that. But what is that in your experience? What, what do you think that is, actually? And how do you tune into it? I, I think it's uh, that openness to the moment. Mm -hmm and not being trapped in a particular mindset that makes mm -hmm. you blind to what's mm -hmm. going on. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm not sure. I'm still waiting yeah. to find out. Feeling your way around that. You know, they uh, clearly tendril. I'm just, I mentioned that word in the book, but just if you haven't read it, it means auspicious coincidence. Yes. Synchronicity, maybe mm -hmm. something like it. And one of the things I mentioned in the book is that accomplished people, accomplished masters, have an aura of tendril around them that's heightened, stronger. 
like you and I remember being around Karmapa 16, it's like just coincidence of firing left and right or around um, Tulko Ujin or, or, or Maharaji or Trungpa Rinpoche. So here's my theory of that, is there's a zone, the zone, the bhav, in which there is nothing but tendril. Everything is tendril. And we are just poking our heads in and out of that zone. So everything that happens to us could be auspicious coincidence, but we may not understand the auspiciousness of it. Yeah. Is that it? Uh, or we don't notice it at all, would be another version. Yes. We don't even know, duh, you know, we don't even notice what, <laughs> you know, what, what beautiful girl, I didn't even see her, you know, or whatever. Right. You know, right. Or what, um, you know, yeah, that was Steven Spielberg at the next, at the restaurant, sitting right behind you. Oh, I didn't, you know, you don't even see. Or you don't recognize that that's an opening that some force wants you to connect at that point. So there was a possibility, but you didn't open the door. Yeah, either you didn't notice it, or or you sort of noticed it, but you kind of you kind of didn't activate or connect yes. with it. Yes. But that there's nothing but tendrils. So the way I'm trying to live now is like in in, in that way. There are no nothing's an accident. If, I, if I'm in an elevator with somebody and some conversation sparks up, it's exactly, you know, uh, tied to being utterly riveted to the, to the present moment, you know? So that's the state of being perennially open to whatever comes. Yeah. And how it might be helpful or useful or... It's like you're living in a Swiss watch and you, don't, you didn't know. Oh. And it's not that somebody designed it either. It just is a Swiss watch. There's just total precision. Um, and I think potential for um, love. Oh, for love. Yeah, potential. That's, that's so interesting. I find that also the more in that space you are, the more in love you are. That's like, I like simple, I, I quoted Maharaji in the book as saying, you know, when Ramdas says, um, love everyone and tell the truth. Well, you could take my whole book and just collapse it, and that's that's what it, that's what it would look like. So, when you feel an absence of love, it's because you've withdrawn from that tendril field. You're not in it. Hmm. You know, even an annoying person, you would think, well, there, you know, there's some compassion or passion there. So. But anyhow, we're also trying to just give people practical tools, you know, of, of like. Um, but I presented this as a practical tool. Pay attention to synchronicity as a practical tool. There's, you know, notice what's happening around you. And also then um, we talked somewhat about uh, overcoming poverty mentality. What is poverty mentality? So poverty mentality is, is a phrase that Trungpa Rinpoche coined. You just don't feel confident that you're worthy of it, of the tendril, oh. Oh. of the coincidence, of, mm -hmm. the, of the joy, of the love, of the extreme so, beauty and precision. Such a feeling of unworthiness. Unworthy. There's another way to put yeah, it. Yeah, poverty about oneself is what yes. it's implied. Mm -hmm. And, and um, that, I think a lot of people, that expresses itself in our in our personal life or in our business life. There's a, another, a, another chapter called Don't Negotiate Against Yourself, <laughs> which is another expression of poverty mentality. You, you, you start right away in a business exchange. You start saying, oh, it's okay, I can do I can do that for less, you know. They haven't even given you an offer yet. You're already working against yourself. Mm -hmm. you know? So there's practical spin-offs of it. So let, let, let's just take a few minutes to look at creativity. Oh, creativity. Yeah, that's the third piece. 
Yes. You, you, you actually did tap into it a little bit. Do you, do you think of yourself as a creative? Uh, my business is uh, thinking. <laughs> and thinking of what might be uh, new, interesting, and important. That's creativity. Yeah. However, that line of is it new, interesting, and important was a theme at the New York Times. Yeah. Where I did a lot of my early training mm -hmm. because that is the definition of news. Wow. Okay. It used to be. Used to be. Yeah. Yes. Before, <laughs> Before news became news a little shoddy. <laughs> yes. Back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, now some people call me a thought leader, mm -hmm. which means that um, people are interested in, in what I'm thinking. Yeah. And it might send them in a particular direction. Yeah. And that's, I, I think that's a kind of creative role. Mm. I don't really have a day job. I write books. I write right. articles. I do podcasts. I, uh, and um, that's that's my livelihood. Really. Yeah. And I would say that implicitly it involves uh, creative thinking. Just and and if, how would you differentiate between creative thinking and ordinary thinking? For example, um, when I come up with an idea for a book, mm -hmm. it has to be a creative thought or else nobody wants to read that book. Mm -hmm. Is it the same old, same old? Or is it some new frame, new twist? So the creative spin? part is reframing, recalibrating? Or, or, you know, the one definition of creativity is uh, putting together two elements that have never been put together before mm. that in a way which people find useful. Mm. That's how Howard Gardner defines creativity. That's probably how hip-hop came into being. Poetry and... R and B, exactly. Yeah, nobody had ever done that before. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. and um, I find it uh, enjoyable. Yeah, you like to think. I like to think, and I like to think thoughts that might be creative, uh -huh. and that might be useful to people. Right. If it's if it's new and useful, yeah, I, I find that a win. You get kind of jazzed by that, like I get jazzed by like playing sound and music and notes yes. like it just feels good to do that you you like to just kind of let your mind soar i do yeah yeah it's, it's, then i like to write about it and and, and capture it yeah. yeah the execution is writing about it yeah and so the, the creativity yeah. it just comes you can't make it happen right. isn't that right so yeah the, you know the science behind that right is this mm. when you are doing something executing i'm on task you're in a particular brain state mm -hmm. and the task may be i have this problem and i have to come up with a creative solution yeah and you think about it and think about it you can't figure it out yeah then you forget about it that's called the brain's default mode to forget to forget the task mm -hmm. your mind wanders but most creative ideas come creative insights come during mind wandering i mean the history of mathematics and physics is full of things like uh, he grappled with that math problem for three years, and then one day he was walking on the beach and he got the answer. Mm -hmm. It returns later, and like, and then he has to execute. Yeah, he has to like, okay, write it down and sure. you know, publish it. Yeah, 
And it's the same, I think, with most any creative idea. Mm -hmm. Then after you get it, you have to manifest it in a way that people find it useful. Well, the two steps to that are so interesting, though, because the first one is almost the antithesis of what we would call mindfulness meditation, where you sort of notice the thought, but come back to some kind of sensory experience like the breath. Well, there are different varieties of mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's what you just described is one model. Right. right. There's another, which is uh, sometimes called Vipassana. Sure. Where you create a kind of platform in your mind and you watch everything come and go. And then there's mind wandering. But you're not allowed to capture anything, are you? No, not in that. Okay. No. But I say mind wandering is a third inner mental stance because you're not particularly, you're not disciplined in any way. And what happens is that uh, different elements, which may be stored in different parts of your brain, have a chance to come together for the first time. And you're using this phrase as mind wandering. Mind wandering. Like almost aimless wandering, like when you walk. Yeah, because I think a lot of mind wandering goes on during so-called meditation. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, meditation is in fact a discipline which is encouraging you to notice your mind wander and bring it back to the way in which you're meditating. Mm Mm-hmm. That's like the basic move, sure. basic rep in yeah. any meditation. But actually, I think the creative insights that can occur during meditation come during mind wandering. Not when you're focused on visualizing this or there's my breath going out. So, How would the traditional uh, meditation masters characterize what you just said? They would say that uh, uh, creative insight is a distraction. So they wouldn't kind of be following you down this No. This path. However, I had one meditation teacher, Manindra, who was very interesting. He belonged to a caste in Bengal that's been Buddhist since the time of Buddha. He's the only group in India wow. which has that lineage. And he said, oh, if you get a really good idea while you're meditating, write it down. <laughs> and then go back to meditating. <laughs> Well, now, there's one other, you know, and then we, we kind of burnt through this, but I just want to say on the record here, I think Daniel Goleman just invented a new, a new dimension to the notion of meditation practice, which is, I've seen a book called Mind Wandering. <laughs> the mind, you know, there's the mind only school. And then the, oh, Daniel Goleman. The mindful back, school. He lived back in the mind, he lived back in the 21st century. Yeah. He started the mind wandering school. <laughs> it's really intriguing, That's- but. You know, some in terms of creativity, what some people would say, and I think I might be one of them, but I'm I'm going to have to contemplate what you just said because it, it's it's got more depth than might appear. Like that, the mind wandering is a juicy field of, uh, and then finding little cherries in it and picking them out, is the um, notion of which as you know, Tonkar Rinpoche used to say a lot: first thought, best thought which is that the mind can be open and clear, and then a thought that comes out of it is kind of has the quality of wisdom, intuition, uh, deep perception, immediate you know, relevance. And um, so there could be a lot of space. I think what he's pointing to is like, if you're just mind-wandering and it's a very dense field, you're not going to be able to sort of appreciate. That's right. Differentiate. I, I actually think that he's right in the sense, I mean, in terms of what I said, mm. that the meditation state uh, clears everything out mm. so that the insight 
is very apparent. Vivid. That's first thought. That's Jumps right. out. Yeah. So how would that relate to mind wandering? I still think your mind wandered a little bit when you got that first thought. <laughs> it Well, it also wanders after you got the first thought, what should I do with this? That could be... There's a little bit of mind wandering. Sure, you know, I think I'll episode. start... I'll start write a book or I'll start a company. Sure. You know. And then you write it down and then you go back to your breath. Yeah. That's a very open... Or uh, yeah. you don't write it down. Right. You just know it'll be there when you're done. Sure. And finally, like dream states, for example, in a dream, things seem to just pop out like uh, without the ordinary constraint on them. Like, I'll give you an example. Um, I dreamed an entire song about four months ago. Mm. I mean, in the dream, the song was there. It, it was in a setting in which I, I, with another person, had written this song. We were in a, in a club and people were dancing to it and stuff. And when I woke up, I remembered the entire song from beginning to end. Minus the lyric, it was uh, there was a little piece of lyric, but mostly music. But where did that come from? Where the hell did that come from? <laughs> People are trying so hard to be creative, and then you go like, "Oh, you just burped," and you know something came out. So how does that relate to the realm of thought? And not yeah, I, I really don't know. <laughs> I don't know, and it's okay not to know. Yeah, it's okay not to know. I think that's a good good place to end. Absolutely. Daniel son, you are such a pleasure for me. I just want to Likewise. Take, yeah. It's I a mean, delight. It's a delight yeah, to so. wander through these fields together. Thank you. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.